Welcome to Roads Less Travelled. My name is Sophie Ryan and I'm an Australian Rhodes Scholar currently studying in Oxford. In this series of conversations, I talk to some remarkable individuals, some from within the Rhodes community, some from beyond, about the Roads Less Travelled they've taken in life and some of the things they've learned along the way. The best advice I can give to young people and others around the world who are feeling a sense of despondency about where we are and where humanity is. I would say, firstly, pessimism is a luxury we simply cannot afford. And the pessimism of our analysis can best be overcome by the optimism of our creativity and actions that seek to resolve the injustices or problems that we face. Today, we're talking to Kumi Naidu, who for more than 40 years now has been a human rights and environmental activist. I don't want to go into too much detail before we jump into the conversation, but to give you a bit of a taste of Kumi's story, at 15, he was expelled from his Durban school for his anti-apartheid activism. And his campaigning in the years after that led to him being arrested and forced into exile in the UK, which is when he came to Oxford and earned his doctorate as a Rhodes Scholar. After the fall of the apartheid regime, Kumi then went back to South Africa to do important work for the new government and then from there went on to hold a number of important leadership roles with social justice organisations worldwide, including Head of Greenpeace and Secretary General of Amnesty International. He has recently published what I found to be an extremely moving memoir called Letters to My Mother, The Making of a Troublemaker, which we will discuss in our conversation today. So Kumi, hello, and thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you so much, uh, Sophie, and thank you for having me, and thank you for that very kind introduction. I- I'm sorry, though, that I need to just correct one small, uh, one big, <laughs> that is, you said that uh, while at Oxford, I finished the PhD. So the truth is, I was in my sort of third year when Nelson Mandela was released from prison in February. And the moment that happened two weeks later, I was back home, figured out how to contribute to what was happening. Um, and I actually suspended, there was a thing that you could do then at Oxford, I don't know whether you can still do that now, called lapsio status. So I stopped the clock ticking on my, I suspended my studies and then came back sort of, shoo, almost uh, a decade later, <laughs> and then finished it. So I think I have a very embarrassing record at Oxford. I think uh, I've probably taken the longest to actually finish a PhD. A, a I don't think that can't be true. Yeah. But <laughs> I started in 87 and I graduated in 2000. So that was quite a long time. Okay, I did a few things in between. But, uh, but for the record, uh, when I went for my graduation, the president of you know, the college was the same president, you know, when I arrived. I see. I overlapped with him and and it was quite strange. He was still there 13 years. Yeah, I bet that would have been quite odd. Well, Kumi, with the, the caveats around your time in Oxford in place now, let's move to taking you on back to the beginning of your road, so to say, to kick us off in our conversation, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early childhood was like. Uh, I grew up in the city of Durban in a township called Chatsworth. And like all townships at that time, they were all racially designated. And so I grew up in an Indian township. And quite early on began to see the injustice of apartheid because every time you took a bus into town, you would pass schools with four green sports fields, for example, and your school didn't have even one sometime, you know? Mm. So the inequality became quite visible. So so I was quite uh, curious and was reading a lot in the newspapers and I think it was, the main thing was Steve Biko's murder in prison in 1977, um, sort of 
began my first sort of arousings because there was lots about it in the newspaper, the inquest in his death and so on. And so that really moved me. And then I started talking to progressive teachers and so on. So I was getting, you know, quite politically aware and already searching for how I, together with my friends who were part of the conversation, how we could organize ourselves to make a difference. And then on the 10th of April, 1980, disaster struck when my mom took her life. And this was two weeks before a national student uprising against the inequality in the education system um, would explode. And I then, two weeks after my mom's passing, was one of the student leaders in my school and in my community that was thrown up as one of the leaders. Uh, we were suspended from school, then reinstated and went back to school. But by then we were in our heads, I think many of us, we are part of the struggle and we're gonna make whatever contributions that we need to make to end the system of apartheid. That is a choice very many young people of my generation made across the country. And, you know, we didn't understand much. We were kids, right? So, you know, the slogan at the front of the march in my first sort of uh, demonstration was, we want equality. By the time the slogan got to the back of the march, the younger kids were chanting, we want a color TV, we want a color TV. <laughs> I thought that was what the slogan at the front of the march was. But if I'm brutally honest, at that age, 15 years old, you probably wanted a color TV and equality almost equally, and both would have seemed equally unattainable at that point in one's life. Um, and, you know, the trauma of my mom's passing was, was, was very difficult. And in a way, the fact that this, the boycotts happened at that time and there were options for me to take all my energy, including pain, anger, everything into the, uh, my activism just meant that I became very committed and gave it, gave it my whole. And, um, and then the following year I got expelled from school and then uh, self-taught myself with some support from textbooks and progressive mm. teachers took a chance to come to our houses to teach us. And we wrote the exam that, you know, adults who drop out of school when they decide to come back to finish the school leaving certificate, we took that exam. I was lucky to, to pass good enough to make it into university the next year. And then all this time though, one is getting very actively involved in youth organization, um, civic organizations, as well as in the broad anti-apartheid movement. And so when um, I made it to university, it was very interesting. I didn't need university for my first activism because I already had like two and a half, three years of activism already as a high school student. Mm. So when I came to campus, I didn't become heavily involved in the student movement. I participated more as a rank and file student attended all the meetings and so on, but was always rushing home, you know, for that uh, experience. So, uh, and to contribute to what was happening in the community where I lived. So anyway, maybe to fast forward, we went through a period of uh, lots of repression, many friends and comrades were killed. We were, you know, funerals every other weekend and so on. And eventually my situation required that I needed to flee. But just before I fled, I got the road scholarship. And so I had a fairly soft uh, landing on the other side compared to many of my comrades who had to jump over borders into neighboring countries and then find the way and so on. So yeah, and then I guess uh, that's where it started. I don't know, maybe I've gone too far already. I'd love to actually unpick a couple of those things in a little bit more granular detail, Kumi, if that's all right. I, it's, there's, there's so much to unpack, I suppose, but maybe to go back to your early years of activism in particular, with your work with Helping Hands, for instance, and the school boycotts, 
at that point in time, I mean, the, the consequences of getting involved with these movements, was that something that was on your mind in terms of, for instance, school expulsions and uh, the prospect of whether you might go to university after that. I wondered if if we could go back to Kumi at age um, 15 to 17, that period of time. How was it that you came to put your, your activism front and centre as your number one priority then? So those two years were, you know, two of the most, like, um, exhausting years in the sense of, um, the mental exhaustion from the trauma of my mom's passing and trying to cope with that. And then the literally the physical exhaustion from sleeping three, four hours because one was trying to keep up with your schoolwork on the one hand, and then you were getting, you could be involved, you know, 24 seven, because there was so much to do. And so few people, people always think that at all given moments in the struggle, to end the apartheid regime, that there were large numbers of people engaged. When the depression hit, the numbers of people. So we had to take into account the question of depression in that period. So, for example, our youth organization, Alping Ends, the name Alping Ends was chosen. We could have called it uh, Rise Up Against Injustice, right? But we called it Helping Ends quite consciously to give it a soft name so that we could say that we, we, as young people, were coming together to keep young people off the streets by organizing education classes and sporting activities and so on. But of course, once we, if we ran an athletic program, while we were warming people down, you know, at the end of the session, we would sit in a circle and then we would gently have conversations about what was happening in the country and try to educate people in a very stealthy way if you want that's what repression meant at that time because and you had to be careful because it was known that the government had spies in every community whose job it was to find out who the troublemakers were and so on and so i was impressed with the parents around us right you know because we found the right balance by always doing good things in the community so we were adding value to community life by supporting the children's home, by supporting the home for people living with disabilities, by uh, organizing extra education classes for kids that were struggling in subjects like maths or, or, or English literature and so on. And so doing that gave us uh, credibility in the community. And also like the, one of the biggest campaigns we waged was when the bread price in 1982 shot up you know, by uh, quite a lot of money at that time. And we mobilized the campaign to appeal to the government to reduce the increase. We failed, we failed. But the fact that we did that, you know, the parents in the community felt, well, these kids are really caring for what's happening in the community kind of thing. So we had some credibility by tactically choosing activities that would bring our parents closer to us. Because right now, you know, the same challenge exists across the world. The intergenerational divide we see between young people understanding, for example, the urgency of climate, as well as understanding the urgency of fundamentally reconfiguring an economic system that is not working for people on the one hand, and then you've got parents largely not aware of how bad the situation is because they've but accustomed to doing things in a particular way for a very long time. So that period anyway was also a period of immense learning. You know, we, mm. we learned everything from how to chair a meeting, how to take minutes, how to um, prepare an audit for an annual general meeting, um, how to silkscreen T-shirts, uh, you know. Could you tell us a little bit, Kumi, about who was influencing you in this period? Who are you learning all of this from? So... We had uh, activists in our community who were older than us who were at university, and there were four of them in particular who really nurtured our development in quite important ways. Um, so there was uh, Charm Governor and eventually his wife, Maggie, and then um, there was another lawyer, Saroj Pillay, who had offices in the area where I lived and made it available for me to study 
as well as you know to have meetings and so on which was a huge privilege <laughs> to have uh, at that time and um, and uh, shoots naidu who was you know like one of the most intellectually bright people i've met in my life um, and and sadly um, two of them are gone now but what they taught us and and it's not to say that everything they taught us we we took on board just as they taught it to us you know some of the things and it was always my younger brother who's a year younger than me marching this journey with me and so the intergenerational divides we have always is that the older generation has a sense that based on their experience there are certain ways of doing things and that's how we should do it and then the younger generation is looking at the older generation saying you are contaminated by bad experience because if your experience was so great why is there so much injustice inequality uncertainty in the world right so experience you know is not necessarily genuinely respected by younger people at any moment in history but certainly in this moment where we live now and i think there's a justification for that my generation has to face up that we have not provided the kind of leadership and we have brought us to a point of disaster on climate and 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 on so many other things we're not anywhere where we should be so but my ability to engage with these issues today was very informed by what i learned in that two year period that you talked about i also had lots of teachers who used to gently you know educate us pass us a leaflet here and there and so on and all of those things contributed to our learning mm i wonder maybe we could talk about this idea that you're touching on also with being handed a leaflet by the right person at the right time and the the ideas that are sparked by moments like that you write in the book i think at the point where you're reflecting after the youth forum that you organized you discuss there about all of the moments that had come together in shaping your anti-apartheid positions at that point and you wrote there that we didn't just wake up one day with those views fully formed and we needed to accompany others on their own paths to political understanding and commitment one thing that i was thinking about after i read that is that i actually think that for many young people today and not just young people i don't think but for many people today the struggle is also with just coming up with where we stand on issues and what we think about social issues and what we think should be done about them before we take the next step from there about how we actually um take that stand and i wondered whether you have any thoughts from your experiences on how people can confront that challenge and how we should actually learn about social issues and then decide how we might personally make a useful contribution to the issues that we think really matter so i think the biggest challenge we have in the world today is not that uh those that exercise power unjustly or without creativity and leadership uh be- because they deploy the repressive state apparatus by which i mean you know the use of the army the police formal laws Uh, that repress and so on of course all of these are very important things that constrain and shape the space for political life no question about it but what i'm going to say is uh, my chuck some people i don't think that's the biggest challenge the biggest challenge is in fact what has been called the ideological state apparatus by which we mean the framework for education the framework for religion uh, social norms and customs the funding of arts and culture um and critically important the framework for communications and media now um all of this shapes the mind of the average citizen and if you look at the united states as an example right you've got about 35% of the american people who only watch fox news right and they believe every single word that comes out of fox news and now it's just been uh made crystal clear what many have known that fox 
um, presenters and newscasters knew that Trump's allegations that the elections were fraudulent and so on was untrue. But because it made good commercial sense and because the politics was perhaps aligned in that direction, they continued to do that. Now, I say to friends in the United States, for example, you know, you can't write off all the people that voted for Trump, right? You need to understand why they landed in that position, why their consciousness shifted in that way, and figure out how you're going to win them back. So in the apartheid context, right, the South African SABC was the South African Broadcasting Corporation. We called it the South African Brainwashing Corporation. It was a very effective propaganda tool, and our print media and radio was also controlled, meant that the government largely was shaping what you knew, when you knew it, and so on. And a lot of it was either lies or certainly not telling you that which would have made a difference to your analysis. So, like, for example, most people would have grown up, including myself, with the image of Nelson Mandela as a brutal terrorist who deserved to be in prison, right? You know, that's the how he was painted in the, in the media. It was only in 1980 when I was 15, during the campaign for equality in education, that, you know, we hear the name of Nelson Mandela, we start reading about him, and, you know, some of us had heard our parents say things like, say if we went to the beach and we could not go to that beach or the, or the games that were there only for white kids. And if we ask our parents, why is it they can go and we can't go? And the par our parents would say, don't ask questions like that. You'll end up on Robben Island with Nelson Mandela. Oh, wow. And that was the end of the conversation, right? But we didn't know much about him. And then suddenly, you know, when we discovered how many of our leaders were in prison, how long the struggle has been going on, how much of courage they had shown, all inspired us to rise to the challenge of, you know, trying to make a contribution. And the truth is, most of us lived during that period with the sense that we won't make it. You know, we won't make it mm. to 20. But there was a passion, commitment, and a sense of purpose that gave us the courage to stand in front of uh, what we used to call caspers, which were these army vehicles that were brought into the townships and, and that kind of thing. And now that I think about it, it's quite extraordinary to think at that age, the courage that we had, uh, perhaps. Absolutely. <laughs> perhaps because we didn't fully understand the, the implications. Uh, but, you know, the, the truth, though, is we are carrying a major, major pain and a burden from that period, right? I think it is wrong to have done what we did, which is we underestimated what psychological impact the trauma of living through all of that would have had on us young people. You know, so the fact that, um, you know, just the transition happened the way that it did and the country continues to hold together, even though we have major, major challenges and major, major setbacks, uh, is a miracle in a way, given all the trauma that accumulated. But today, when I look at South African society, and I've said this publicly, it feels as if we all need mass healing and mass sort of uh, therapy to help us cope with the scars that we carry from that period of extreme depression under apartheid. I can imagine. Let's go back to also in the thick of that period then when you're going from high school to university in that period where the the fight was all consuming and as you said many of you not expecting to really make it past 21. That's how short term the vision was. Why did you go to university? On the education side, how did you go from that focus to being in a position where you could apply for a Rhodes Scholarship and go to Oxford? And could you talk us through that side, I suppose, of the story too, of how alongside these struggles and your all-consuming activism at that time, what prompted you to go to university at all? So universities were seen as the natural site of struggle, 
right? Yeah. That's where you went to sharpen your knowledge on theory of political resistance, all of that, and where you met other sort of smart and kind of cutting edge thinkers and so on, right? You know, so, but interestingly for me, if, if you can, <laughs> if I tell you what were the three things that I was considering and they were all about which things could I'll make a more useful contribution to the struggle. So, so I considered law, which I, in the end, ended up doing because that was the thing that I could most easily get into with the grades that I had got in my okay. final school leaving certificate. But the reason for that was, you know, many lawyers were in the struggle, they could defend political detainees and so on. So that would have been the reasoning for law. Then the other two things I considered was social work. And social work, because you go into communities, you learn good community organizing skills and so on. And I thought, well, if I qualified as a social worker, this would get me at a very grassroots level, you know, in communities, helping to educate and mobilize people. And then the third um, option was the physical education teacher, uh, because working with kids uh, is another amazing way to actually counter the propaganda that was coming from the state and so on. Uh, the problem with that was uh, to be a physical education teacher, you had to qualify for swimming, and I barely swim that, at that point. So yeah, so, so very much going to university was, though, you know, was a, was a choice of how will that help us in the struggle kind of thing. But I did consider there were a few older comrades who actually said, go and work, go and get a factory job and work for a year or so. And that will help you understand the reality of what it means to be in a working class job and what it means to, for the majority of people in the world. And to be honest, that was very tempting. Uh, and I did explore a few options, but to be honest, I, yeah, is where the memory of my mother still influenced the choices that are made. And I knew my, for sure my dad wanted me to go to university. And whenever I thought about the option, well, maybe I should just like not go to university for a year. Uh, I think just knowing how passionate my mother was about mm. us making university, I've, I sort of, in honor of her memory, I just sort of said, okay, university is the route. I don't regret it. It was, it was very good uh, learning politically, socially, uh, academically and uh, yeah I have fond memories even though we had some really scary and hectic times. I just on the point of also your the role your parents ideas played in that I know early in your memoir you write about the tension between what your parents dreams for you might have been and the waking up to the realization of what the what the realities of apartheid might call you to do and and you write that for your parents, all they really wanted for you was to get a good education, find a well-paid job and move to a more affluent Indian suburb. How have you, in that period of time, I suppose, and after, because I think this is something that a lot of peers struggle with, is just reconciling the image of what those who love you might want you to do and what you as an individual are called to do, if that might be something different. This is a difficult uh but not uh, particularly special challenge, right? Mm. All of us have, like, you know, I mean, whether yeah. you choose to be an activist or not, often children want to make choices different from what the, their parents might have in mind for them. Um, so in my case, I, I was confronted with the reality with my mom gone and being estranged from my dad for the first years after my mom passed, uh, I, I wasn't under any parental pressure in terms of what I chose to do. So I was very lucky and I was also very grateful that my dad paid for my university fees um, for the first three years. But I have to say that, you know, my dad, you know, he, he wasn't encouraging us to be involved in the political struggle at all. But he never, on the other hand, said, 
if you don't stop your activism, I won't pay your fees or anything of that sort. You know, he respected our choice. He would say things like, you know, calm it down and try not to, you know, be so um, visible and that kind of thing. And, you know, during exam times, he would say, you should cool it down now and focus on your uh, exams and things like that. But I am grateful that, you know, uh, and, and, you know, a fair number of parents would have done the opposite. And that's not because the parents didn't support the struggle, but they were just concerned about the implications for their, for their children, you know. Uh, and then, of course, the choices I made within what people in my family and friends and community would have generally thought would be reasonable they thought I was very unreasonable, right? You know, the fact that what people were saying, you're sacrificing your education and you could, and, and that time, the three main professions that you sort of was open to you was doctor, lawyer, and teacher, right? You know, those are the three things. Your parents were very happy if you landed one of those, especially doctor, lawyer. In fact, teacher was seen as not as uh, uh, good. <laughs> so, so you know, it was a very small world in terms of of, of uh, options, right? Because apartheid had constricted the options quite a lot, um, and so, but people like people everywhere, you know, what I find is people are resilient. You know, people can rise above the circumstances that that society throws their way. And I now, when I think back at the some of the parents in our community that were not so supportive of the boycotts and the other activities and so on, I am much more generous to them now <laughs> than, yeah. I was, than I was at that age, you know, understanding that they were trying to juggle very, very painful decisions and choices, um, you know. I wonder whether I could ask Kumi whether, whether you think that in that period, if your mom hadn't have passed, and that period of difficulty with your father as well, whether you would have thrown yourself as fully behind activism as you did? You know, we'll never know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, of course. We'll never know. But, I, but what I tell you, I can, I can safely say, uh, it would have been incredibly more difficult to do, right? Uh, I mean, because, yeah, I, I mean, I started basically attending meetings and not, you know, coming home whenever I wanted and, and, and so on. And I wouldn't have been able to do that. You know, I would have to, I was very, very accountable to both my parents, you know, right until the day my mom passed. So I think I want to believe that I would have struggled to be involved and I would have fought to be involved, but I cannot say for sure. You know, mm. I cannot, in all honesty, I cannot say for sure because, you know, I love my parents deeply and uh, I would have wanted to please them. So my thought processes were far gone, though. You know, by the, even way before my mom takes a life, I'm already understanding a little of what's happening and I'm angry at what's happening. And Steve Biko's passing, I was cutting, you know, snippets from the newspaper and pasting in the scrapbook and of, on Steve Biko's inquest and that kind of thing. So I was on clearly on a journey, right, of um, bef before she passed. So I hope, I want to believe that I would have. I don't think it would have been as, you know, as strong and as energized and as in-your-face activism that I was engaged in in that period. Uh, actually in life mm. that's my best guess and that makes sense that makes sense but hindsight who knows who, yeah. who, who knows my, my mom might have uh, witnessed what the police were doing to kids and seeing kids landing up in hospital and so on and could herself have become an, uh, an activist after what happened during the school boycotts you never know yeah yeah. All right. Well, let's let's fast forward now through to what maybe we can talk about is the exile years at the end of your uh, undergraduate studies and before you're off to Oxford. Could you tell us what that was like when things were really starting to heat up with the police, how you dealt with that, what it was like to be in the thick of that? So, you know, it's 
now when I look back at it, I, I'm like, how did we get through that? Mm. You know? But when you're in it, you just in it. You know what I mean? You 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 just go with the flow, right? Mm. You and and the abnormal basically becomes normal. You know what I mean? Uh, being on the run for like almost a whole year, looking behind your backs, living in different houses, sleeping on the beach sometime, all of these things for almost a year became what was normal existence, right? And, and, you know, now that I look back at it, you know, some of the things that we managed to somehow do, like how I managed to go for my Rhodes College interview without getting caught, I don't know. Yes. Uh, I was already out on bail for violating the state of emergency regulations. And then I make the shortlist and, and I go to Cape Town for the interview. And, you know, suddenly I'm in a place with, uh, in the most luxurious place I'd ever been in my life called the Mount Nelson Hotel. It's supposed to be apparently one of the 10 best hotels in the world. Right? Not in South Africa, in the world. So can you imagine? Wow, quite the contrast. <laughs> in fact, uh, I encountered a, a bidet. You know, I never, I didn't know what a bidet was. What do I do with this? Yeah. Uh, I look at this thing, I wonder what it is. I open the tap, I shoot, the water shoots, hits, uh, hits the roof. Anyway, I've kind of more or less figured it out by the time I left. <laughs> So, and, and, and for me, by the way, getting, making the shortlist for the scholarship, which was, which meant I got a free trip to Cape Town so I can connect with my comrades in Cape Town. That was enough for me. I was like happy mm. to make the shortlist. So I was the most relaxed candidate, right? The only thing that I was unrelaxed about was the fact that what if somehow the police came in and, and you know, bear in mind, I'm, I'm in an interview process where it's like 95% white people in it. I'm the only black candidate uh, of the 12 people in the final shortlist. So it was a very unfamiliar and uh, uncomfortable environment in a way, even though people were, uh, you know, pretty trying out to be, you know, welcoming and helping me fit in. So, yeah, and then, you know, immediately after I find out about the, that got the scholarship, and when I call home to, to tell my, my family, I get the news, don't come home, the army was here, and all of that, and uh, stay in Cape Town. Uh, but I was not very disciplined. I didn't stay in Cape Town for long enough. <laughs> I decided I needed to get back home. I was just worried about family and and then I heard when the army came into the house, they, my little sister, my father, who was about nine, then my father told her to pretend like she was sleeping. And, um, and she did, but they used their rifles and picked up the blanket and, and, and so on. And she was kind of terrified with it. And mm. so you know, all of those stories, like I said, okay, I need to get back home. I made it back home and then get told, that the army, the police were at my office at the university. So I go underground and um, and then the question was, do I write my exams, which were in February, uh, January, February. And then I make a elaborate uh, arrangement to the university. I had some progressive professors there who set it up that the police were pitching up at the earlier announced venue where I was supposed to write the exam. And I was writing it on a secret venue on the exam and it was like january in durban january february where it's boiling hot and to get through the police roadblocks i had to go through a police roadblock for each of my four papers in a disguise so i had a big beard and a long hair was generally how i looked in those days so a very prominent playwright ronnie governor uh, was an activist came and studied me in my hiding place and came up with the elaborate disguise for me to make it in and out of the exams, which was, he came up with this Lionel Richie lookalike. <laughs> Basically, he takes five o'clock one morning into a studio. Uh, it was called Sensation. And this poor woman who was cutting my hair, it was as if she was planting a bomb or, or, or doing something <laughs> You know, crazy, uh, dangerous because she was like ads were shaking all the time, and uh, but she was very nice and gave me a poem 
took off my beard, took off my mustache. But when I woke up and looked at myself at the mirror, I didn't even recognize that it was me. I looked so different. <laughs> my, my aunt, my sister, and my girlfriend at that time, when I walked up to them, I was almost in the face. They didn't recognize me because I also put on like those professorial glasses. Using that, I made it in and out of university, wrote my four papers, and then... Um, that's amazing. Stuff of movies, I have to say, Kumi. And then I was still unhappy, to be honest, about the idea of fleeing the country. I was like... Mm. This is something that I really, I wanted to ask you about. Of How was that to leave the country? And I can imagine the wanting to be home and wanting to be with your people at this point in time. And then also your role in the struggle against the apartheid regime as well. It must have been incredibly difficult to leave. Yeah, no, it, it was. I, I think I never was sure whether I was doing the right thing. And even today, when I look back, I don't know whether I did the right thing, uh, for sure. And in the end, I think it was the words of Billy Naya, somebody who had spent 20 years in Robben Island prison, and he was in hiding as well while I was. and. Thankfully, I was able to, through networks, get to his hiding place and and I spent an hour and a bit with him. And he basically said, listen, get out. What's the point? You're going to get arrested anyway, um, or worse, get out and go get some skills, educate yourself. We're going to need people who are educated when the transition happens. And he, by the way, even though things were really bad in the country at that time, state of emergency, lots of thousands of people in prison and so on, he was like, change is coming. Don't worry, change is coming. And I'm like, oh, I so hope you're right. But I don't know, I, I wasn't. And he knew something, obviously, uh, that we didn't know in terms of how the power balance between the apartheid state and the resistance was playing itself out. And so that's one thing. And the second thing was, you know, many people said, listen, what's the point with you getting killed or being thrown in prison and so on? Rather get out and you can at least use your voice when you're outside as well against the regime. So those are the two things in the end, you know, kind of said, okay. And then also uh, there was some close friends of mine that were on trial for very serious charges. And the message I had got from one of them was, get out of the country, they have enough on you to put you away for a long time, so get out. And also by you getting out, you won't compromise our trials because none of us in those days could make a, like a declaration that I will withstand torture at any cost, you know? So, you know, yeah. but so long as, so long as I was there, I could have compromised some of people's trials that were going on and made it worse. So it was also just getting out safely would make it safer for some of the people that were already in prison. So, um, so all of those reasons, you know, kind of helped me make the decision. But I, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that the culture shock that hit me when I got to the UK was humongous. Uh, mm. I felt for the first six months, I really was so homesick. I mm. and I think I was pretty much homesick for most of the time that I was there because, you know, while I was there, my best friend Lenny Naidu gets murdered and I get that news. Then um, my brother lands up in prison around the same time and is in prison for at least half my time at Oxford. Um, and then, you know, every other week, somebody I knew or knew of was being murdered by the regime and so on. So, so being out was, was, was difficult, but, uh, and so in that sense, I, you know, my Oxford years were not like for many students, like, you know, really enjoyable years and discovering new things and so on. But I did make some very important friendships, learned a lot of important things. Um, about myself, about my country, looking at it from a distance. You know, people people underestimate sometimes the power of just stepping away from the space that you normally reside in and having the luxury to just look back at it from a distance and you see things that when you're in it, you just don't see, you know. Uh, so while it was challenging at times, I made the most of it, obviously, and I learned and made good friends and some of those friendships still endure to today, and some of them intersect with my activism and work, which I also value a lot.
And fast forward to early 1990s and Nelson Mandela's just been released uh, straight back to South Africa then? Yeah, pretty much uh, within a month uh, via Lusaka. I flew via Zambia. Wasn't sure whether, because when I fled, there were charges against me. So when I landed, I didn't know whether I would get arrested at the airport. My The lawyers said they were 50-50 on it. But they said, even if I got arrested, you know, so I, I didn't come alone. I traveled back with the with a friend of mine, Satish Kesha, who sadly is not with us any longer. And so if I got arrested, somebody would know that I got arrested. And then made it to Durban and they didn't proceed at all with the charges against me. And everything soon became partly normal, even though the repression and the power still was with the apartheid state, at least for another four years until the elections were held. Let's pivot to another aspect of your career I'm really interested in, Kumi, which is the work that you've done after the fall of the apartheid regime and in particular some of your global civil society work with organisations like Greenpeace. You joined Greenpeace in 2009 and you have said that you were attracted to Greenpeace's commitment to direct action and civil disobedience, which I think having discussed your background checks out. What was your role with Greenpeace and what was it like working with Greenpeace? So um, I think it, you framed it well. What was my role initially in global civil society? I think it's important to note that global civil society uh, is also an expression of all the power differentials, inequalities, and uh, dysfunctionalities that we see in global society, in the sense that, you know, Greenpeace, for example, is more than 50 years old, and I served Greenpeace for six years, and up to today, I'm the only person from the Global South in all of that period was the head of Greenpeace. Mm. So if you look at the institutions, because they were formed uh, mainly in the global north, uh, they still have a character that reflects that reality to a large extent, even though they've made efforts and my being invited into that space was to help with that journey of dealing with, you know, some of the internal shortcomings of the organizations. Because the problem is we have to create movements right now that look like how the world looks like, right? And if you have organization institutions that largely represent one part of the world, then that does not kind of set the right example and so on. But with Greenpeace, my attraction was very much that the climate crisis was getting more and more serious. To be honest, I did not understand it in the detail that I understand it today when I engaged it. Uh, but I'm very grateful for the learning and the knowledge that I got from that experience. But in terms of civil disobedience, you know, the way it wasn't expected of me as the head of Greenpeace to engage in civil disobedience, but I did, um, you know, when once in Greenland, when I saw, you know, 22 young activists spend about two weeks in prison after peaceful action in to try to stop uh, drilling in the Arctic. Mm. And I went and followed them, especially after the company in question had got a judgment saying that if we did any action, they would, you know, they could automatically fine us. So we raised the money for the fine and then we went and did the action anyway. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and made the point that, you know, because a lot of the power in those situations is more with the companies, right? Because they can, they got huge budgets and lawyers and so on. So... Uh, as somebody who doesn't swim very well, it was a bit... Uh, I can imagine. That would have been quite daunting scaling an oil platform. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but I was glad to have the opportunity to contribute in that way and to send the signal that the lives of volunteers and frontline activists is no less important than the lives of somebody who is in the title of executive director or CEO or whatever. Uh, Obviously, my role meant I couldn't be doing that every day of the week, but 
doing it once there and once in Russia uh, the following year, where we occupied the gas from oil rig called Plasnomia uh, in the Baron Sea. Uh, and, and, and you know, in that case, I did that was because I was anxious about the response of Russia. So I had gone to Russia, met with four ministers, from there flew to Norway, jumped on the ship and went. So that, you know, I thought my being there would, would and, and it did, the Navy was there, the Navy saw we were peaceful, they didn't intervene. But the following year, when the judgment was made, it was not necessary for me to go because the previous year it went well and we're going to do largely the same action. In the end, uh, things turned out very differently. Our activists ended up in prison mm-hmm. three months. They were at one stage facing piracy charges. Uh, this is the Arctic sunrise, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes, okay. Uh, I, I think we're at a point now where we must recognize that humanity is in the most consequential decade in its history. What choices we make in the next 10 years will determine what kind of future we'll have or whether our kids will have a future at all. And it's within that context, I have a very uh, strong sense that we don't have any luxury to be precious about our legacies and about which organizations we work for. Right now, the choice is we need organizations to be as equitable as the struggles that we're fighting, as global as the struggles that we are fighting, and as just as the struggles that we are fighting. And to make sure that if we're not able to deliver what is needed for the kind of seismic, structural, and systemic change that we need to see in the world, then we must make space for others to actually emerge. And so I'm not precious about any particular period in my life right now. All we need to be asking is, what do we need to do and what do we need to do differently that gives humanity a chance to avert the climate crisis because basically humanity is sleepwalking into a crisis of epic proportions and we've been doing it now for a couple of decades and right now nobody can say we didn't know the science is clear extreme weather events are speaking to us clear and don't think that the kinds of conflicts that we're seeing, the migration crisis and all we're seeing is unrelated from the climate crisis. The climate crisis today is at the center of many of the challenges that we are seeing, even though its hand might not be as visible as some might need it to be or want it to be. Kumit, noting the urgency and gravity of these demands that are on all of us individually, but then also collectively moving forward, how do you manage that alongside looking after yourself and ensuring that you can get the most value out of your incapacity to affect change? Yeah, this is a critically important question. And I would say up front, I'm probably the worst person to give you a good answer on it. <laughs> That's why I want to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I'm not close to this challenge of balancing, uh, you know, what people call work-life balance and so on. Uh, though. I am, you know, in a different moment in my life right now um, where I am not looking at it only for myself, but looking at what I'm seeing for young people and others around me and very much feel that participation in public life for a positive public purpose is many things today. It's not only about putting pressure on those who have power in business and government to do the right thing and deliver just outcomes. But it's also critically important for our mental health, right? If we don't find creative, artistic, life-loving ways in which people can come together to try to hold back the crisis or to resolve it or push us in a positive direction, that participation itself is going to be an antidote to pessimism and an antidote to sort of depression and so on. Uh, and, and the worst thing we could have right now is where people just withdraw into very individualistic lives, don't engage in community structures and so on. People are going to need community, you know, to be able to cope with what's ahead of us. And things are going to get worse, right? Let's hope things will get worse before they get better. That's what we're fighting for. But let's be clear, the amount of damage we've done already 
we are seeing the extreme weather events and they're going to be with us for some time to come. And it's still a big question whether humanity will mobilize the kind of courage that we need to make the big changes that we need to make to secure our children and their children's future. And just to say, the planet does not need saving, right? This is not about saving the planet. This is about ensuring that humanity can coexist with nature for centuries and centuries to come. If we continue on the path that we are, we will be gone. The planet will still be here. And truth be said, once we become extinct as a species, the forests will recover, the oceans gone. So don't worry about saving the planet. Understand the struggle that we are engaged in is to secure our children and their children's futures. And given what a big stake and what a high stake that is, let's hope we can mobilize the moral courage to make some comfortable and some uncomfortable changes to ensure that we can secure our children's futures. I agree completely. Let's turn now, Kumi, to some rapid fire questions to tie off our conversation for today. Feel free to answer with just the first thing that comes to mind. The first question for you is something interesting that you might have learned about yourself or more generally in the past year. Ah, in the past year, I've learned that I am significantly more emotionally vulnerable than I thought I was. And I've also learned that uh, as a result of that, I've learned that I am more resilient than I thought I had. Powerful stuff. I wondered what in your mind, Kumi, might be the most radical act of civil disobedience that you've engaged in? Uh, I think at the age of 15, leading the two high school pupils uh, from my high school into the street, even though we had been made aware that doing that could, in, could invite police gunfire. Mm. And I think even though I've done things like occupying oil rigs and so on, which might sound more bold and so on, because of the age I was when I did it, I think that was the most memorable and most scary. Mm. Mm. One person, Kumi, that you would love to have a meal with, alive or dead? Well, most people won't know this person. His name is Sixto Rodriguez. So Sixto Rodriguez was a musician and a worker in uh, Illinois. He made an album which made it to South Africa, uh, and became a big hit in South Africa, but didn't go anywhere in the US. And then decades later, some of his fans in South Africa tried to find him. There's a documentary done about it called uh, Looking for Sugar Man. <laughs> and he comes as a laborer. He was working all his life. He made this thing. It became very popular. He sold more records in South Africa than Elvis Presley sold. <laughs> wow. And so, and his music was also appealed to white liberals and liberal South Africans more generally at that time. Uh, and so, in any case, um, he gets discovered. He comes to South Africa. He thinks he's going to perform for like 20 people. There's, every concert he does is like 10,000 strong. I eventually managed to get, it, get into a concert to watch him from a distance. And his music is amazing. His lyrics were better than Bob Dylan's. If he was uh, a white man at that time, he would have been a, a mega star. But what impresses me most is then he became super rich and was traveling the world and all of that. But he continued to live the simple, humble lifestyle that he lived throughout his life. And he never let wealth, you know, change his values and so on. So I would love to have... A, a meal with him. Mm. Yeah. Uh, if you could change one thing about the world tomorrow, Kumi, what would that be? Uh, it would be gender equality. Okay. I, I, I would try to ensure that we have 100% gender equality because I think all our problems, including the climate problem, including inequality, comes from... Uh, humanity depriving itself of the wisdom, participation, creativity, and knowledge of more than half the population of the world in most countries around the world. And one final question for you, Kumi, is the best or most useful advice that you can pay forward right now? 
the best advice I can give to young people and others around the world who are feeling a sense of despondency about where we are and where humanity is, I would say, firstly, pessimism is a luxury we simply cannot afford. And the pessimism of our analysis can best be overcome by the optimism of our creativity and actions that seek to resolve the injustices or problems that we face. And not to accept that what is in front of us and the life that humanity has created for us, that we've created for ourselves, is the best that humanity can create. Don't accept that and really push for always moving humanity to create a sense of justice, create a sense of equity, create a sense of sustainability. And that's not a bad way to spend one's life. Mm. What a perfect note to end the conversation on, Kumi. Thank you so very much for your time and for sharing all of your wisdom with us. Thank you so much for having me and uh, I hope your listeners find it useful.